Yes, Lord. Lord, we respond to you today. We thank you for your presence, Lord. You're here in this place. You want to pour out your spirit upon us. God, your, your spirit that washes away guilt and shame and condemnation and the heavy burdens and the, the garbage of this life. And Lord, you bring your, your love, your grace, your mercy, your friendship, Lord. You, you pour it out on us, God. We receive you today and we worship you in this place. We're open to what you want to do, God. Come and move in this time and this time of worship. And as we open up the word and engage with you through your, your scripture, Lord, we thank you for what you're doing today. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Give a shout of praise today. Awesome. Let's go. Andrew, we're having church today. Come on. We were talking about that on Tuesday. Man, so good to be with you guys today. What a great time in the presence of the Lord. What a great time in worship. If you're kind of new to church, kicking the tires on the Jesus thing, checking out church, and you're like, man, these people are, are kind of weird. It's true. Um, but man, it's a nice place to be as well. And there's donuts. So at the, I mean, it's a risk reward thing, but we're, we're so grateful that, uh, I'm so grateful everybody's here today. We're going to jump into the word today and uh, we're going to continue in our series, Famous Last Words. I thought today I might be giving you my last words because last night I went to a scorpion farm. Yes, it's a real thing. It's not really a farm, but uh, Dave and Deb Walters invited us out to their place outside of Marcola and they live on this rocky crag of a hill. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And uh, how many of you ever knew that you could like find scorpions with a black light, with UV light? Anybody know that? Yeah, they glow in the dark like that. And it's, it's just as scary as it sounds. So I was kind of nervous because, I mean, I'm not really a big time outdoors person. To me, outdoors are the space between air conditioned environments uh, to get in between. I, I love National Geographic, but I don't want to go there. You know what I mean? It's good enough to see it. Some of you are like, that's not good. Okay. Anyways, Bethany's like, hey, we're going to take the kids out to the Walters, and do you want to go look at scorpions? I'm like, sure, let's do it. So we go out there, and sure enough, we're out there with the Heflin clan and Dave and Deb, and when, the, when it gets dark, the scorpions come out of the rocks. And in my mind, they were like the size of lobsters, you know, was what we were going to have, and they'd be aggressive, so it's coming at you, you know. But that's not, they're really like about three inches uh, long, and they're kind of hiding and more scared of us than them. But I don't have a stinger that comes out of my back. So, so there are scorpions. But anyways, that's what we did. And uh, luckily I don't have to give my last words today. We made it. We saw some scorpions and we lived to tell the tale. And we're here today. As we talk about this series, Famous Last Words, it's taken from what we consider to be the last words of the Apostle Paul. He wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy, uh, in the book called Timothy, First and Second Timothy, Second Timothy being the latter. And Paul writes this from prison. Uh, he's, he's in prison in Rome by the mad Emperor Nero. Nero's the guy that fiddled while Rome burned. He had persecuted Christians. Paul kind of knows this is probably it. He's in this, this dark place, and he pens these words that we're going to read today, and we've been going through the last few weeks, to his son Timothy, his spiritual son. And just like when, when you kind of know, man, this might be the, the end, we, we give gravity and weight to last words, and the words of Paul are a rich inheritance of truth and how to live the life of faith and win and go the distance and make a difference. It, Paul does such an incredible job. And so that's what we're looking at in this passage. We're going to jump right in in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Bethany did a great job a few weeks ago going to the end of the book. And then I did an amazing job last week going in the beginning of the book. Incredible, amazing, ridiculous, right? I mean, it was just, it was good. I mean, just humbly, I'm kidding you guys. Come on. 
You guys are hanging me out to dry today. But uh, we've been going through this series, and, and we're going to finish it up on chapter 2 today. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. Now, this is one of those verses that it's easy to just sort of gloss over when you're reading your Bible. You can kind of be like, okay, there's some religious sounding words there. Where's the meat? Where's the good stuff? But I want us to really kind of pause for a second and look into the richness of what Paul is talking to Timothy about. He says to him, be strong through grace. That is the command. And this this phrase, be strong, it means to be empowered, to be filled with power. In other words, let God's grace be the fuel of your life. Let God's grace be the thing that gives your engine energy. Come on, somebody. God wants us to have a grace-empowered life. That is the fuel that we're meant to run on, and that's what gives us the power and strength and ability to be who God's called us to be and do all that he's called us to do. Paul talks about grace in Ephesians chapter 2. I love these verses. He said, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The thing about grace is that it gives us power, it gives us energy to run the race of faith, to, to move forward in who God's called us to be, but it's not about performance, how good you did this week, how bad you did last week. I'll hear people say things like, you know, I'm trying to be a good Christian. You can't be a good Christian. You can just be a Christian or not. Come on. There's no such thing as like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a better Christian on Thursday than I was on Monday. No, that's your sort of perspective. The reality was God was carrying you the whole time. And so Paul's saying, Timothy, remember that you need to live a grace-empowered life. That is the fuel that drives you, not your performance, not how good or bad the circumstances around you, but the reality of the gospel working on the inside of you, my grace sufficient on the inside of you, God's grace working in you. Our confidence is in the work of Christ at the cross. Now I want you to think about Paul. He's writing these words from prison. He's not in a place where you'd be like, hey, everybody, it's Pastor Paul here on TBN, and I'd like you all to send your check-in to 321 Tyler, Texas, Shawnee, God's Throne Drive. You know what I mean? Like, he's not winning in life. This isn't his, God's best plan for his life. Like, he's in jail. He's, he's being treated as a criminal. He's in a bad place, okay? It's not three hots in a cot, guys. It is not a good place that he's in. And I'm striking out on these jokes today, but... <laughs> His grace is sufficient for me in my, my attempts at, at comedy. Paul's in jail. He's in prison. And another time in his ministry, he actually had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was. A lot of people think it might have been a, a sickness or something. And he's saying, God, please take this thorn from my flesh. And, and listen what Paul reflects in 2 Corinthians 12, what the Lord spoke to him. Each time that he asked to take away this thorn in the flesh, this is what God said. My grace is all you need. Man, I, I wish when I prayed that God would say, I'm going to give you my grace and I'm going to fix your ow owie, you know. I'm going to give you my grace and I'm going to give you the money that you need. I'm going to give you my grace and I'm going to cause this difficult neighbor to, situation to disappear. But that's not what he says. He says to Paul, you're asking, please take this thorn out of my flesh. Get me out of this situation. I don't like it. It hurts. God says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And so Paul says, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. The reality is, as the scripture teaches us, that we carry this treasure, that is the, the, the power of God, the spirit of God, we carry it in earthen vessels. 
There was an album by Death Cab for Cutie, one of the most awesome remaining guitar rock bands in the world right now. I've seen them in concert. They're amazing. Anybody like Death Cab for Cutie? All right. There's two of us in the room, and we're together. But uh, uh, they had an album called Kintsugi, and it was talking, the name Kintsugi comes from this Japanese art of broken pottery that they fix the cracks with gold. And this Kintsugi, this, this art that is created, is actually considered to be more valuable because it's broken and repaired rather than just whole and, and how it was meant to be. And I think, what a beautiful picture. It's too bad a Christian band didn't make that album first because that is a uniquely grace-empowered idea, that God's power works best in our weakness, that we are broken and yet God's glory actually creates beauty in our brokenness. Do you know that God will actually use you in a greater way in the place of your weaknesses, in the place of your wounding? God will bring healing to others through those places. As, as Lee was sharing today, she said, I'm not a public speaker. You do pretty good, Lee. But anyways, God, God's using her in a place of weakness, but showing his grace and his glory. You know, I always joke a lot about being an introvert, and people are like, you're not an introvert, and I actually am, and God uses us in the place of our weakness to be able to minister and bring healing, and Paul says, Timothy, be strong, be empowered, let God's grace be the fuel of your life. Then he goes on in verse chapter, or verse chapter, <laughs> uh, I enjoy words, words are fun. Uh, in verse 2 of chapter 2, he continues, he says, Timothy, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Now this is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible because it describes how this thing that we call church, this, the kingdom of God, how it moves and advances and how the gospel goes down through generations and why we're even sitting here today, this verse describes how this process works. And I like to know how things work. It's kind of the mechanics of it because what we see here is discipleship in action. Jesus, his last words before he ascends to heaven in Matthew chapter 28, right before he you know, ascends into heaven, his disciples are gathered around him. This is what he said. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of that, because I'm the boss, because I'm the Lord, because I'm the cat's pajamas, that's what it says in the original Greek, if you understand, because I'm the bee's knees, because of that, all authority is given to me. Because of that, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These are Jesus' last words. I heard one pastor say it this way, that Jesus' last command should be our first priority. And, and what we see is that Paul is reminding his son Timothy, this is how discipleship works. This is, they were committed to it. These early Christians didn't take the last command of Jesus as a suggestion. They took it for what it really is, a command, a way of life, a mission that was given to us by our commander. And then we see it happening in four generations, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Before we go to that, though, I want to say this. There is no such thing. You will find no, no such thing in the New Testament as a disciple that does not make disciples. You see, in our Western 21st century affluent Christianity, we've invented a category of Christian that the Bible does not actually identify, which is a spectator, which is a consumer, not a contributor. Now, how many of you are grateful for the grace of God that takes us from where we are as we are in our brokenness and our, and our woundedness and our sin and brings us into a place of sonship and being a daughter of God? How many of you are grateful for that? Yes. 
But how many of you are also grateful for the fact that God doesn't just bring you into his family, give you a seat at the family table. He also gives you a position in the family business. Okay, now you better watch out. I'm Sicilian. And when I start talking about the Cosa Nostra, the family business, it's a family, you know, you're either about to have a really good Italian meal or do something super illegal. Like it's one or the other (laughs) or both in some cases, you know, but Jesus says, my last command, your first priority, his last words, this, this movement of discipleship, this is what we are to do. There's no, no such thing as a disciple that doesn't make disciples. That should be our, our mission. And Paul describes this to Timothy. He says, look, this is how it works. There was generation one is Paul. Generation two is Timothy. Generation three are these trustworthy people. And generation four are the others. How many of you are grateful that we're probably like generation 48 of the others? That we are actually here because somebody took this seriously and said, God can use me even in my brokenness, but an empowered life of grace to minister to others and actually make disciples, to teach people what Jesus taught, to teach all of his commands and to follow him and to invite people to share in the life of the gospel. This is how the church wins. This is why I like this verse, because if we'll realize this, all that it takes is keeping the pipeline going, keeping generations happening, father, son, son to son, son to daughter, like moving it on and on. And Paul doesn't even have any natural kids. Timothy is his spiritual son, and yet God's family grows and advances and moves forward. The church wins. The kingdom of God moves forward even through history because of this. So let me ask you two big questions today to ask yourself to kind of put this into action. Number one, who's discipling you? And number two, who are you discipling? Because it's easy to be in church on a Sunday and be like, yeah, let's make disciples. Woo, it's on our banner. Woo. Banners don't make disciples. You know what I've noticed is that no banner discipled me. I didn't like show up at church one day. Thank you, Tamara. She laughed at my joke. You tell it, just a true disciple of Jesus who will laugh at the pastor's jokes, you know, even the corny ones. I didn't ever show up at church and read a sign and be like, you know what, changed my life. Wow, God just blew my mind because of what was written on the church's banner over here on the left side of the stage. No, you know what changed my life was sitting across from a battle-scarred believer who opened up their woundedness and weakness to me and let God's power shine through. And out of their grace empowerment, actually ministered to me and discipled me. Hello. Somebody actually invited someone to church. Someone actually invited someone into their home. Someone actually prayed for another person and prayed for them to come to Christ or prayed for somebody to be healed or just was there when life was getting pretty bad. I'm preaching good. I think this is okay. I wasn't discipled by a sign. I was discipled by people who weren't perfect but they poured their life out. So who's discipling you? This question, who's discipling you? Who can you put a name and a face and you hear that voice in the back of your head that this person is is actually pouring into you? Because maybe you're saying, well, Pastor Jake, you're discipling me on Sunday. No, maybe a little bit. The reality is that as a pastor and uh, I don't make disciples because I'm a pastor. I make disciples because I'm a disciple of Jesus. The job of a pastor, the job of a prophet, the job of an apostle, of a teacher, of an evangelist is to, as it says in Ephesians 4, equip the saints, equip God's people to do the work of the ministry. 
The work gets done by us, not them, not they, us, God's people, the church. And so discipleship is about life on life. It's about relationship. So who's discipling you? Do you have someone? If not, find someone, ask someone. Just grab somebody who looks like they have battle scars. Anybody in this building with wrinkles can probably help you in some way. Come on. How many of you people that are over 22 like me? I'm somewhere between 20 and 60. I'm never going to tell you. But anyways, I'm in that range. You look in the mirror and all of a sudden the other day I was like, I have a hair coming out of my ear. What's going on? Ah! You know, I looked in the mirror. Dad, no, it's me. Ah! You know, it's, it's horrifying. And the wrinkles and all that. People come up to me, you know, and my kids are ruthless. They'll be like, Dad, your beard's so gray. And I'm like, yeah, you know why? You. <sighs> it's all this discipleship going on. Find somebody. People are here ready to disciple you, to, to help you follow Jesus. Number two, who are you discipling? Well, Pastor Jake, I've only been a Christian for three months. Man, what's taking you so long? Remember what I said about Christians? Well, I'm not a good enough Christian. What does that even mean? You mean you, you're, you're having to help Jesus save you, or did he do a pretty good job at the cross? And now you're learning to walk with him. Yeah, you're growing in maturity, but what about somebody who is two days into the faith? Can you disciple them? What about somebody who doesn't even know Jesus? Can you disciple them? Who are you discipling? Yeah. Can I tell you one of the most dangerous things to the kingdom of darkness is when a Christian just says, God, I'm here and I'll do what you tell me. You go, I don't even know how this works. Today, the step is this. Be available. Be open. Say, God, use me. I want to disciple people. I want to make disciples. Who's discipling you? Who are you discipling? Or like this, at Joy Church, we have joy groups. We, we don't just do them because churches are supposed to have small groups. We actually are trying to create environments where discipleship can happen. So join a group, right? Build a group. We say it like this at Joy Church. Take the journey and take someone with you. Take the journey of following Jesus and just take someone with you. One of the rules of my life, you know, one of the things I try to live by is I, I'm asking the Lord, uh, God, I always want to have somebody who does not know you, somebody who's not a Christian, that I'm discipling, that I'm pouring my life into, that I'm building a relationship with, and I always want to have at least one person that does know you, that's in the kingdom, that I'm pouring my life into, because I just want to be taking this journey of following Jesus, and I want to take somebody with me. And it happens in these generations. And if you'll be open to God, you're going to have that, you're going to be part of that unbroken line of seeing God's kingdom move forward. It's really powerful. Paul goes on in verse 3, he tells Timothy, this is where we kind of get a little deep. He says, endure suffering along with me as a, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And Paul uses three analogies here. He says, soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. And hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Think about what I am saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. The thing about these three pictures that Paul uses is each of them is working for a purpose, something long-term. The soldier's on a mission. He has an officer that enlisted him. The athlete is chasing this prize. And the farmer is working for the, the harvest, working for the crop that comes. And Paul just kind of uses these to give us some clarity on what it means to follow Jesus. For the soldier, the thing is that you have to stay clear-sighted on the mission that was given to you. You see, Paul says, don't get tied up in the civilian affairs of life. We, we call this in our culture drama. How many of you know there's drama in family? 
There's drama at work. There's drama at school. There's even drama on TV. Man, I hear people arguing on Facebook about stuff like that celebrities did that you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's mad at Taylor Swift because she has a jet. Well, if you had a jet, you'd fly it around too. Well, she's a hypocrite because she's saying global warming and she's using her jet. Let me just tell you right now, man, I love the earth, but if I have a jet, I'm flying it. We're going to Cabo. Let's go. <laughs> man, I'm excited about We're going to Mexico in a couple weeks. I just got really pumped about it, you know. Anyways, there's drama. And Paul says, look, if you're a soldier, keep your eye on the mission that you're commanding officer has given you. The world, the flesh, the devil are going to try to take you off course. Christians, as we hear these words from Paul to Timothy, don't let drama knock you off course. He talks about the athlete. The athlete has to stay disciplined to go within the rules. I think about some of the athletes that impress me the most right now are Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky. They're both Olympic swimmers. Michael Phelps won like 30 gold medals or something and dominated. And then I think Katie's even more impressive to me. She's, she swims the distance, you know, swimming, and she'll be like 30, 40, 50 seconds, a minute and a half ahead of everybody else. And it's incredible. But you know what? Everybody sees the gold medal, but what people don't see is the hours and days and weeks and months spent in the pool going stroke after stroke after stroke. <gasps> Breathe. Not like that, Katie. Not like that, Michael. You know, like keep, keep going. Paul says an athlete that's going to be a champion to win the prize, you got to stay disciplined. Christians, you know, People will see when you are moving in your gifts. People will see when you're kind of showing, showing up as a Christian, but what they don't see is those days where you don't feel like a superhero and yet you still decide to open the Bible, to read, to drink some coffee, and to say, Lord, let your grace be enough today. Come on. Just putting in that, that time, and God is going to do something amazing in your life. And Paul uses this third, third example of a hardworking farmer. You know, we're in Eugene and Springfield here, and I don't know how many of us are farmers, but some of our friends and brothers and sisters out in Harrisburg and Junction City and out yonder, you know, they're real farmers. And I have some friends that are farmers. And you know, what I know about them is they don't farm for fun. They're, they're not like, all right, I'm going to hop on my John Deere tractor. And woo! Like, I mean, maybe a little bit, but it's not really for fun. Do you know what they're excited about? Harvest the fruition of the labor and the effort and the seeds that were planted and watered and all of that time and preparation and effort and all that goes into it. They're excited about the harvest. And what Paul is saying is Timothy, the farmer, the hardworking farmer is the one that gets to eat first, gets to enjoy the fruit of their labors. Do you know that serving Jesus isn't just about, man, just do it and just die and everything's horrible, but someday you'll go to heaven. No, the fruit of your labors, the joy. Even Jesus, it says in the scriptures, endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Yes. One of the things that we say uh, about, about Joy Church is that, man, we are on a mission. We're an, arm, we're, we're an army. We're marching. We're doing the work. We're taking up our cross. But, man, we whistle while we work. Yeah. We sing while we march. We have a blast while we're serving Jesus. Yeah. And we're also looking forward to the great reward of heaven, looking forward to resurrection. But you know what? The gospel's not just the message about how to get to heaven when you die. It's also how to bring heaven to earth while you're still alive. And so the hardworking farmer is looking forward to this reward. Uh, I don't have time to read the whole quote, but in his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis talks about the idea that taking up our cross is always contrasted and brought uh, together with this idea that we're looking forward to reward. And it's perfectly acceptable and okay 
as a disciple of Jesus to say, I'm being faithful, I'm doing the laps in the pool, I'm planting those seeds, but as a farmer, I'm excited to eat the harvest. I'm excited to receive the reward. Paul goes on in verse 8, he says, Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. Paul was very clear always, who do I preach? I preach Christ and Christ crucified. I preach Christ resurrected. Our day and age is so propagated with so many gospels that are a mixture of Jesus plus something else. And, and you get away from the purity and the potency of the gospel when you lose that the, 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 the thing, the thing is resurrection. Paul said, this is the good news I preach, the heart of the gospel. Keep your eyes on the prize, Timothy. Tim, Timothy, Timothy, don't lose sight. Keep, keep working for this because this is what is worth living and dying for, this gospel, this good news. Paul says, and because I preach this good news, this message about resurrection, I am suffering and I've been chained like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be chained. Do you know what I love about the gospel and what I love about the kingdom and what I love about the four generations and, the, and all that comes out of it is that somebody could come up here and slap me in the face with a tortilla like the tortilla challenge or something and shut me up, but you can't shut down this movement. You could close the doors of this church. You could lock and bar the doors. You could, you could turn off the electricity and the gospel will not be chained. How many of you like to be a part of a kingdom that is advancing and winning and moving forward and God's power is at work and that even if somebody goes down, even if somebody has a problem, even if some megachurch pastor decides to go and live the wrong kind of a lifestyle that we don't go, you know what? Let's all just close it all up because it all died. No, the gospel cannot be chained. This message is unstoppable. This message is, you can't suppress it because it's too powerful. It's too, it's too transformational. Paul says, I'm in chains, but you can't chain the gospel. And he says, so I will endure anything. I'll go, I'll go through it. He's in a bad spot. But I'll go through it if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. When you live for the gospel, when you live on mission as a disciple maker, when you're running the race of faith and you're running it with all that you have as a good soldier, a good athlete, a good farmer, when you're going for it, you're going to experience resistance and persecution. doesn't mean you're not going the right direction. It means you need to stay the course because you're aiming at resurrection. You're aiming at what Christ has for you. A.W. Tozer said this, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. Jesus said in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. There's an interesting lie that gets told right now in our culture about how people in the world typically reject Christianity, not because of Christ, but because of Christians. And, you know, Christians, if they were better Christians, then I would be a Christian too, you know, if Christians were nicer and they were less bigoted and they weren't so whatever that Christians get accused of. And, you know, what I found is that Jesus actually told us what would happen. He said the world loving their darkness and loving their deeds, lest their deeds get exposed, they curse the light. They don't want the light. The reality is that when you bring the gospel into your workplace, when you bring the gospel, and I'm not saying be a religious weirdo. Don't do weird, dumb things and just, I heard a message at church, bring the gospel, so now I'm wearing a sign at church. Oh, no, like that's not, or at, at, at work or something. If, you, if God has specifically told you to wear a sign, I'm not trying to be mean, but probably isn't going to do a whole lot. But when you live out the gospel and loving people and communicating with them and sitting across the table and being there for people and sharing God's love with people and sharing his truth with people, 
Sometimes there's going to be hatred and a response, a reaction against it. And it's not this thing of, oh, the church is so bad and if the church would be better. No, no, no. Jesus said the reason why is because in the darkness, you don't want the light. It's like when you're asleep and somebody comes in and brings a flashlight. Get out of my face. But this gospel, this message, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. So we keep, we keep moving forward. Just finishing that thought about this lie that the church is so bad, the, re, the reality I've experienced, I've grown up in church, and I've seen Christians make mistakes and I've seen Christians be mean. I've seen Christians do unchristlike things. But against that, I've also seen absurd generosity. I've seen ridiculous, relentless forgiveness. I've seen thousands upon thousands of absolutely horrendously broken people come in and get part, become part of a family. I've seen the gospel and the grace of God that's working through my brokenness work through other people. And what I've seen is a group of people that are actually doing good in the world. In fact, if you go back historically and you look at the Christian church and in the Roman Empire, they were throwing babies out in the street to be eaten by dogs. And it was Christians compelled by the love of Christ, compelled by the new ethic of love that Jesus demonstrated and and taught to actually care for the orphans and care for those thrown out in the streets. It was Christians that started hospitals everywhere in the world where the light of education and empowering women and helping children and raising up societies has been Christianity. So don't buy into a lie that says the church is this bad kind of a thing because you're, you're just buying into some sort of a modern lie and you need, to, you need to combat that lie with truth, even in your own heart so that you realize I'm a part of something that is meaningful, not perfect, but meaningful in what God is working through. And Paul says, you can't chain this gospel. This message might be opposed, but, and you might be resisted. You might suffer persecution, but you keep pushing forward. And he finishes with this in verse 11. He actually gives this as a, it's, it's a hymn or a song they would have sung. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Charles Spurgeon commented this. He said, It may not strike you at first, but scholarly men have observed that the 11th, 12th, and 13th verses assume the form of a hymn. The Hebrew hymns were written in parallelisms, not, of course, in rhymes, and these three verses are thought to have been one of the oldest of Christian hymns. And what he's referencing is that Christians would sing songs to each other, these spiritual songs, hymns, to encourage each other in their gatherings. And this is what Christians would, would sing in church. This, is, this would be like us taking that song we sang today, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And when a brother or sister was despondent and down, we'd say, remember, this is who God is. And early Christians would encourage each other. And Paul's encouraging Timothy with these words. Remember that even when you're unfaithful, Timothy, Christ is faithful. He can't deny who he is. He can't deny his nature. Whatever we endure, whatever we go through for Christ is 100% worth it in the final analysis because Jesus is worth it. Resurrection is worth it. If we die with him, we will live with him. And we can look forward to the prize that God has for us in Christ not just out in the future, but even today, a relationship with him. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your head and close your eyes today? We're going to get ready to finish our service today. Listen, if you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I'm, I'm kind of wanting to start a journey of following Jesus. I know that I'm not living up to God's standard. I know that I'm, 
I'm a sinner and I need a savior. What we do here every Sunday is we just make an opportunity to start this journey of faith. The scripture says that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And we know that following Jesus isn't just a prayer. It's not just a moment. It's not just something you do in church one time and then live however you want. It's a journey of following Jesus, but there has to be a a beginning step on that journey. And so we do that every Sunday. And all that we'd ask you to do is if you want to make that decision to follow Christ today, not going to embarrass you, not going to call you out. All I'd ask you to do is, well, everyone has got their head bowed and eyes closed. If you would raise your hand so I can see, and I'm going to pray with you today. That's all. If you're here today, thank you so much. If you're here today, thank you. Awesome. Pastor Jake, I want to put my faith in Christ. I want to start this journey. Anybody else here today? Anybody else here today? Awesome. Awesome. Let's pray this prayer together. We're all going to pray it together. Dear Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I know that I've fallen short of your standard, but I thank you for your grace and mercy revealed to me at the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be right with you. I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. Amen.